Washed Up Emo sponsors New Belgium Brewing are celebrating their 30th anniversary as a company. To celebrate, they're releasing Wild Ride Amber IPA, a happy tribute to their iconic fat tire. Even better, New Belgium Brewing are giving away bikes and gear all year. Find out more information by visiting newbelgium.com. Do you ever wonder if your favorite band is emo? Tired of being in the same conversation with friends? Not knowing if you're listening to post-hardcore, screamo, emo revival, emo emo violence, even ska. We're We're here here to to help. help. The Emo Council is here staffed and ready for any question you may have. Hey, Emo Council, just wondering if Green Day was considered an emo band. Thanks. Green Day is not an emo band. Okay. From the creators of Washed Up Emo, isthisbandemo.com offers the definitive answer to the only important question of your day. Hey, is this been emo? Forgive me for running off the fine the one thing I have to do Today on the podcast, we welcome Sergi from Sam I Am, Zalea, and Knapsack, among others. He agreed to take this trip down memory lane with us for the podcast. Welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. <laughs> um, uh, so w- were you into, um, this might not be either, but were you into hardcore or punk first when you were getting into music? Uh, well, I've never been into hardcore ever. Uh it's uh hardcore, hardcore you know I, like I love a couple of bands I guess you might call hardcore like uh Snapcase uh or the or Refuse and stuff but in general I just don't like hardcore and I even as a youngster looking for something uh aggro or whatever I was just really never interested I was actually you know like my brother and I the first thing we liked was uh like soul music and then came, I think, yeah, then came, like, heavy metal, like, like Slayer and stuff, and then came punk rock. But, ah. yeah, I, I was never into, like, you know, I should name bands, actually. <laughs> I was never into this band, I was never into that band. Yeah. But, uh, how was it, how was it, how was it finding it about bands? Was it your brother, you know, bringing home, you know, mixtapes, or was it, you know... Uh, going to the record store, how did you really dive into finding out if it was when you were into metal or if it was into soul or even punk? What was the what was the way? Uh, I think you know it was it was a kind of a cooler time before the internet and uh, and and stuff because a, a big way that we found out about things were just bands coming around, which is kind of a, a pure way of marketing your band than uh, than anything else. You know, going on tour sort of bring, bring music to people, so to speak. Uh, and we didn't really know, you know, the difference. Like when The Crew, so when uh, Seven Seconds The Crew came out, we didn't really have a real big grasp. And we were probably old, old enough to have, have it, but we didn't really have a, a, a big grasp that, that, that uh, Cheap Trick sold, you know, a million records, and The Crew only sold whatever they sold. We thought it was pretty much the same thing, you know? Um, so yeah, so like you know, like in, when we were in the metal, it's like we were from San Francisco, 
And we just happened to be like preteens and teens when like Metallica and Slayer and even like bands like Motley Crue were just playing for a hundred people, you know, at the Keystone Berkeley or whatever, uh, and Berkeley Square maybe. Um, and yeah, yeah, we found out about them just from like total, uh, quote unquote, the scene. And by the time, uh, punk rock came around, um, yeah, it was kind of the same thing. Like we loved the circle jerks and the adolescents and, um, Black Flag, you know, and it, I guess in a, in a way we, we were, we're into regional kind of things. There were things, you know, because, because bands from uh, New York didn't really come out back then. I mean, they did occasionally, but usually it was bands that made it to San Francisco that we'd see or Berkeley that we'd see. Um, you know, definitely, I think a lot of people, or the people that I've interviewed for this, you know, haven't been from that sort of part of the world. It's been either the South or the Northeast or the Midwest or even even L.A. or San Diego. What about, you know, Gilman shows? What about that time for you was so special? Because it's revered by everyone that talks about it. Um, and maybe it's just, you know, they're looking back and they're nostalgic, but I mean, there was some very important bands, important <laughs> things that are still, you know, relevant. What what about SF for you, you know, really connected with you in music? Uh, well, you know, San Francisco and, like, the Gilman kind of thing were two just totally separate things. Like, uh, you, you probably heard the term East Bay, which is, like, Berkeley and Oakland and stuff, and what Gilman, Gilman was. That was, like, a, a big deal with us and basically little kids, you know, or like young, young people. And San Francisco, meanwhile, had a, a, a totally vibrant scene of music scene of like over 21 clubs and, and like funk and all this other kind of music. Um, so like when, when you talk about like late 80s or something, uh, uh, and you, and you say San Francisco, like Gilman wasn't really what was going on, <laughs> you know, it's, it was it, it was much more like there was like these bands like uh, I still know the names of these bands like uh, Limbomaniacs and Psychofunkopus and MCM and the Monster which were all like real heavy duty like white boy funk bands that that were uh, you know they would draw 600 700 people uh, at at the big clubs in San Francisco at the same time that you know Op Ivy was like drawing 100 people like and being the kings of the scene and still okay maybe there's 100 200 people or whatever um so yeah so like in from from our perspective i suppose because we i assume we're both like interested in punk rock or else we wouldn't be talking right now uh we think, <laughs> of, we think of operation ivy and we think about like early green day and stuff and, and neurosis and all that it's been like the big thing but really in, in the greater bay area and san francisco that it, it wasn't like the big bands it was just stuff that we were into. <laughs> you know? So it so it wasn't getting written up in No in Yeah. No Gilman's Gilman shows would never had any kind of advertising and definitely no you know, publicity like in the weekly and or anything like that. You know, and when Op Ivy what was huge, like near the end when they were like when they could get five, six hundred people and more, you know, um and was a, a, a def, definite like teen uh, phenomenon in the Bay Area. Um, yeah, you wouldn't read about that in the, in the SF Guardian or anything like that. It was, uh, you know, it's kind of cool. That it was kind of under, more underground. And 
when and and you were you know going to a lot of those shows like how, how did you find out about or was it just you saw a band and the opening band before them played the next week and you went and saw them it was that kind of thing it was very or well, organic yeah it was there i mean it was really a time when there was a scene and i know there's scenes all around the world and there's scenes in different periods of time in different places in the world uh, but you know i live in los angeles now and there's millions of shows that go on and all sorts of different kinds of music. Uh, I, I've yet, I have lived here for 11 or 12 years. I've yet to really actually discover a scene anywhere in LA. You know, I've gone to like, you know, 5,000 person punk rock shows and stuff here, but there's no really scene. You know, what sort of st- sparked you to play? Like, was it a show? Was it a record? Was it a, was it something that said, I'm going to play music and, you know, I, I'm going to play drums, I'm going to pl- I'm gonna sing, I'm going to play guitar? What what kind of hit you? Uh, well, you know, I, I played drums first, and uh, the fact that I was kind of a shitty drummer was because drums were something that as a little kid, I said, ooh, that'd be neat. And then when I discovered how difficult it was, uh, I I had a drum set and I played drums, but didn't really, you know, try to play drums for years and years as a young kid. And then at, at some point I got just possible to be like a Gilman Street drummer, which is a term I throw around occasionally when I'm talking about a kind of shitty drummer. <laughs> uh, um, yeah, but when I decided to play guitar, my uh, I have a twin brother, my brother. Um, he played guitar. It kind of in the same way. He, for whatever reason, I picked drums and he picked guitar. And he took uh, guitar lessons and he got, you know, good enough to do a couple little thing, thing of bobs on it. And I actually remember, like, uh, just one time just saying, well, that doesn't look that hard, picking up and sort of sitting down with the guitar after, like, never really sitting down with it and really trying to figure out what like what a bar chord was and maybe a couple other chords and realized I, I remember just one time I realized actually that and rather than like it feeling like a chore like drums always sort of felt uh, rehearsing that holy shit I've been sitting here and three hours went by how the fuck did that happen you know like I was immersed in it and uh, it was a fun thing to do. And then what were some of the influences on you when you were first playing? Was it, I mean, I, I'm, for, I was a guitar, I'm a guitar, I'm a guitar player. I never liked sort of playing other people's songs. I always just wanted to play my own. Like, yes, I'd play along to stuff, but it wasn't be like, I'm going to learn this song to a T, you know, what were, yeah. was it, for, was it for you learning other bands or just doing your own thing and kind of figuring out as you go? It was it was learning learning other bands and and specifically uh, it was learning descendant songs off a of, off a of cassette and you know if I look back in my 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 life and music I love it's like you know I do have a soft spot for the descendants uh, and you know they're a great band and everything but it's not like one of my most uh, loved bands sort of all kinds of music and all, or, or even necessarily of punk music it's not my favorite band but it definitely was the defining uh band when i was when i picked up the guitar and the like single most influential 
uh, music for me to like figure out how to play. And I guess it's it's weird because it's not simple music by any means. It's fast and it was a lot of downstroke picking and kind of difficult for a guy that you know my fingers hurt playing guitar. Uh, but it was conceptually pretty simple. It's like almost all bar chords and uh, and it's riff based rather than like be free flowing. So like a, from going from step A, which is you know nothing about how to play guitar, to hey I can actually play a song. You know, it was something that you know in a couple of days I could play my maybe a day, maybe two days after really picking guitar, I could play a descendant song. I mean shittily but I could play it. I could get from the beginning to the end. And then, like, Doughboys is another band that, that I loved, and then Bad Brains. And, yeah, it was like those those, those are the bands that got me into it. And then, you know, by the time Sam I Am started, and I was, like, writing my own stuff and uh, and wanted to be a little bit more serious, uh, I, I had gotten into, like, like DC bands, like Discord bands, and... Uh, and then also just like Britpop and all this other stuff. So it sort of expanded by then. It wasn't, I wasn't still going, I, I want to be in a band that sounds like the Descendants. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's, that's actually, that's exactly what I was going to bring up. You know, I, one of my questions was, were you aware of like the DC scene? What, well, back, I mean, a lot of the people that I've been reaching out to and, and interviewing were, you know, in these, either if it was Midwest or East Coast, and they're sort of, either the bands would kind of tour through because it was, you know, close. You being on the West Coast, the DC, you know, bands, that's definitely a big deal for them to come all the way out there. And you weren't, you know, it wasn't like you could go search them on Google and Wikipedia what they looked like or anything. Um, what about, like, how did you get involved? How did you get into the DC, you know, scene? And what kind of, what was, what did you like about it? Well, you know, uh, I never, you know, people always talk about like the last 15 years, 20 years, whatever, uh, about stealing music. But as a kid and as a young adult, I never bought music. Like, wait, to me, like me and my friends, music piracy was way stronger than it is now because we all listened to cassettes and hardly, I didn't, you know, I didn't have any money as a kid, not because I grew up poor. It's just like, I didn't have allowance. I didn't work till I was 16. Uh, so before I was 16, like, I never had a penny in my pocket. I'd, I'd have to, like, beg my parents, please, can I have a candy bar or whatever? Um, so records were way out of the uh, realm of, like, I didn't have uh, money for that. And so we did a lot of, uh, through fanzines, a lot of tape trading, and we'd find out about bands through fanzines, like Flipside, Max Mackinac, and a lot of smaller scenes and skate scenes. Uh, and if, there's one, if there was one label... I don't know if they paid for any ads, but if there was one label that had an ad in every single magazine there ever was, it was uh, the Discord ads that had like their current like 15 releases or 12 releases. Um, so like I was saying that before about not knowing that Seven Seconds of Crew uh, was smaller than Kiss or whatever, you know, it didn't sell in near as many records. I didn't really know that. It's the same thing with like DC bands. I didn't really think of Bon Jovi being a huge band and, you know, Marginal Man uh, being a small band. I was just into what I liked and I considered, you know, uh, you know, Rice of Spring to be a really big band. 
Yeah. You know? No, the so. it, I mean just a similarity. I had never seen big bands. I had thought the New York City and Boston hardcore bands were the biggest bands in the world because that's who I saw and that's who I was interacting with. I didn't know yeah. that there was like these arena tours or realize yeah. that they were big. Um but just being so far away. I mean, that's interesting that you know the the tape trading really hasn't been brought up as much where it really was, you know, you had a copy of X record and you traded it for this, or you made a dub of it for somebody. And maybe your dub was the fifth dub. So it was a little scratchy and wasn't sounding as good, but that was still your copy of embrace or rights of spring or Fugazi or whatever it was. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, uh, because Max rock and roll was probably like, sort of like the hub, you know, it's sort of the internet, uh, for a lot of people around the world because I had tapes like one side would be uh Italian eight mid eighties hardcore bands, the other side would be uh like uh German bands. And so uh when Sam and I started touring, going to Europe a lot, I'd meet people like older guys that were in bands, uh in Germany or whatever, and I go, Oh yeah, I know who you are and they go, What are you talking about? How do you know? We were just a little small band. It's like I got I, I got your tape. There's this guy, Winnie, that I've been friends with for, you know, 20-something years in San Francisco. He's lived in San Francisco for years and years. He was a singer of this band called uh, To-Do Hospital from Bochum, Germany, when he was, like, a kid. And when I m- met him, you know, like, in the early 90s or mid-90s, whenever it was, uh, I go, oh, so what are you, what are you, what are you, what are you doing? What, what, are, you, what, what are you all about? Because he's a photographer uh, and just, you know, he just goes, oh, you know, I played in bands too. I was in this band uh, in Germany. And I was, uh, what were you called? And he goes, oh, he, he wouldn't know. How would you know? You know, how do you know? And I go, sure enough, I, I knew to do hospital. And he didn't believe me. He couldn't believe me. He's like, what the fuck are you talking about? You don't know. Never heard of to do hospital. I, go, I did. I had a tape. It was Inferno to do hospital and sperm birds. Bam. And he goes, holy shit. How do you know those bands? <laughs> it's funny. And that was for Maximum Rock and Roll and yeah, Tape Trading. Yeah, they used to have class fights in the back, and people would be like trading tapes, and they'd have lists and stuff. You know, it's like it's basically the same thing as peer to peer now uh, uh, in the internet. But I don't know; it's weird. No, the, no one like the guy at whatever label, like a guy who touch and go. He never like wrote a, an article. Stop! Stop trading tapes. It's piracy. What the fuck? You know. There was there was like a major label campaign because they used to have this logo that was a cassette and it, as as a skull and there's crossbones and it said something like music piracy is uh, killing music don't do it or something like that but that was just like a bullshit major label kind of thing well, amongst like indie labels and and just people like there's no thought like what like no what how what no it's we're just t- taking tapes you know it's, it's no big deal. So, you know, it, it kind of puts in perspective, like, uh, for me, the fact that I never spent money as a kid or as a young adult, uh, and now as an adult, really, either, uh, on music. I never really spent a great deal. There's a time when CDs came out where I sort of got sucked into collecting uh, CDs a little bit, and maybe had like 100 or 200 or something like that. Uh but, like, if you were going to really follow music and be, like, a really good citizen, you know, and everything that you heard, there was no internet to stream stuff on, I mean, how much money would you need to be as knowledgeable about music as, like, you or I are now? You'd have to be, like, you'd be spending billions of dollars, like, thousands of dollars 
every year to keep up on what's going on with music, you know? Yeah, it's just that there, there, there's so much noise. And for so many people to be able to know what's happening and, you know, probably 10 bands have put up their record on Bandcamp right now while we're talking. Um, right. and it's, yeah, there's, there's, there's really no way I just, I'm obviously I'm, I'm nostalgic. I run a stupid blog about it, but it's just that, that moment of either getting that CD or getting that dub from your friend and putting it in your car, being home and being able to play it all the way through and not being ADD about, all right, I got one song from one band and then oh, I want to skip it to this one and I'm going to get into this. Like, I don't think I would be able to, I don't think I would have sat with records as much if, yeah. I was around now, and I think even with that tape, it was that you got that, you traded that tape, and that meant the world to you, and you, you know, really dove into it. Yeah. I'm still like that now. The thing is about me, it's like I'm old, and I'm jaded, and I hate everything. Um, So it makes it, when I do discover something new and young (laughs) and, and, and special and unjaded, that, uh, like I go full bore. Like you know, at the fest, I met uh, the dude from uh, from Iron Sheik, and I was aware of them, and I knew they were getting kind of popular. But I said, okay, I'm gonna fucking listen to this record. So I bought the record and got it. And like you know, last three weeks or four weeks since the fest, I listened the shit out of that record. You know, like a fucking like fanboy over it and love it and stuff. So. uh so, you know, I'm still like that. And it's like, I don't listen to the first three songs or get to that one good one and then go, okay, all right, now I'm going to go listen to something else. I listen to all the way to the end, you know? And, you know, I did that earlier in the year with this band called Citizen, who, who are a really young kid band. And uh, and they're not terribly original. They sort of sound like the Catherine Wheel um, or something like that. But, like, I love their record. I think their record is, like, out of that, like, new... Uh, quote-unquote 90s revival emo thing that's going on right now. Like, I think far away, they're way better than all the ones that 10 times popular they are. Uh, yeah, and like, I'm telling you that right now because I freaking love that record. And I didn't just, like, listen to it and go, hey, yeah, it's a pretty cool record. Uh, whatever. You spent time with it, yeah. I spent some serious t- time wearing the shit out of that record, too, you know, so... Well, it's, it's, um, I definitely want to dive into the the word of the podcast as well. I mean, the emo revival stuff um, is very interesting. Do you have any uh, thoughts on why it's now, why it's 2013? I have my thoughts, but I'd love to know yours, sort of why you think this is just something that popped up recently. Well, you know, I don't know how big it is. Uh I know that there's like a handful of bands like the Tile Fight and the Balance Composure that go on tour and play in front of lots of people, but I'm not so sure that they're making tons of money or, you know, it's making a dent into like the consciousness of like the average Joe walking down the street or anything. Uh, I still think like all the shitty neo-metal swoopy hair bands are way more popular than than those bands, (laughs) than the emo things. But I think I think it's really cool that after years, after it's been like I don't know what it's been. It's been twelve or thirteen years of the kind of the swoopy hair like boy band metal bands, uh, and the Warp Tour just like making me really disdainful for stupid youth. <laughs> I mean, you know, you know, I mean, I'm being an arrogant old jaded fuck, but I already told you that I am like that. But I mean, I really like just like looking at these 
bands and just shaking my head and or looking at kids and go, God, you are fucking, you have such bad taste. Like, I can't believe how bad this is. Um, and I think it's really fucking cool that there's like this, these melodic bands, uh, that, uh, are sort of taking, you know, they're coming from the same place that bands when I was seriously like touring and playing music, you know, uh, you know, you know, it's like bands that make music that you can tell they don't just fucking listen to just what's going on in their scene. Like, you know, like uh, these heavy metal bands and stuff. It's like you you see them on the promo pictures that every single guy has a different current metal band T-shirt on or, or whatever, and they're all like, you know, look the same and stuff. But you know, like the guy going back to that Citizen band, you know, I know that that guitar player listens to shit out of Cure, the, the Cure and stuff. He's not just listening to uh, Title Fight and Balance Composure. He listens to some Ratchet, probably listening singers, probably listening to some Leonard Cohen or something. You know. Well, and, the other uh, thing I loved about it was that these bands, yes, they're into all these different genres. Like you can see, it's coming from the right place. They're in, they're into the Cure. They're into maybe punk. They're into something different. And it comes together, and that also is how a lot of the shows are being. There's an instrumental band, and then there's like a harder band that kind of screams, and then there's a, like a really like atmospheric band. But they all, it all makes sense, and it all sort of plays together. And it's not these sort of package tours of, you know, uh, breakdown screamo. Um, right. That's what was really excited me when I started hearing about these, and that it's like, wow, they're really coming from at the same place. So it's interesting that you said the same thing, that it's it's like, wow, they're, you know, sort of not just trying to find out what's popular and, and writing it. Yeah. I mean, it's, and, and, you know, obviously we're going to talk about those bands on your podcast, you know, or me, me talking about it. Uh, but there's all sorts of other, like, sub-genres that are looking, that look back. Like, uh, there's, like, a really a pretty big 80s thrash scene uh, of new bands playing basically like what the same th- same treading the same water that like early Metallica or, or Exodus uh, uh, do, and there's a whole thing, especially in LA. Like there's really weird phenomenon, not weird, this really uh, interesting phenomenon of kids. You see these kids that look they look like uh, uh, they look like like sort of <laughs> I don't know how to describe it, but uh, they they wear denim and leather jackets and they have patches on their on their jackets and there'll be not one patch of any band like that from from past like 1988 you know like <laughs> I can definitely Motorhead. picture it yeah and and they all just sort of look like I don't know if you, like you saw what uh, James Hetfield looked like when he was like 19 but just like kind of pimply and. He doesn't have to shave yet, but just like a little bit of like half mustache and just kind of, you know, and there's this like huge, and you know, I live in uh, downtown LA and it's just borders East LA. So I spent a lot of time in, in East LA and I see, uh, which is like predominantly Hispanic. I see these like young, like um, Mexican American or like, uh, you know, Salvadorian or, or kids, they all have skateboards. And they all have like these, like they're really into this like 80s metal. And I look at them, and it just makes me smile because uh, when I was in the metal in in the late 80s or whatever, early 80s, mid 80s or whatever it was when I was a little kid, I was nerdy, and so I didn't look like that. I wanted to look like that, but I was just a nerdy kid. But these kids, they look so fucking cool because they look 
cooler than like Tom Araya or freaking, uh, uh, you know, uh, whatever, like yeah, James Hetfield looked or, or Lars Ulrich looked. They look cooler because they're young. <laughs> I don't know. It's, it's just like I look at them like, man, I wish I was a little kid right now. I'd totally be in that scene. You know, I considered you guys a punk rock band, you know, and, you know, there was a certain point of time where people would be like, oh, no, Sam I Am's emo. Um, and I was like, I, I didn't, you know, what was, what, did you hear that from someone or were you just kind of doing your thing? And just, it kind of gets back to the word emo in general, like when you first yeah. heard it, but I, well, I we're, we're, we're decidedly not thought of or remembered as, uh, belonging to any, any scene, because if you look at, uh, a list, like LA Weekly recently did a, a list of all the uh, important uh, emo bands. Sam I Am wasn't on it or whatever. Um, and if you look at a list of the most important shit, you go look at a list. I don't know if they never made one, but most important Gilman bands, uh, we would probably not be on it. Uh, um I think really, and definitely if you looked at like skate punk or like, you know, uh, California punk of the 90s, we probably uh, almost for sure wouldn't be on it. I think, uh, you know, to me, it's it's kind of a compliment, backside compliment, I guess, uh, that we never fit into one thing because I felt, feel like, well, we didn't feel fit into any one thing because we were sort of... Uh, semi like on our playing you know like uh our own tune so to speak you know i mean that's the real positive way way like you keep telling you that stuff that surgery <laughs> kind of positive attitude uh but i guess maybe the more negative and maybe the more realistic uh attitude is that um we just weren't really thought of enough at all just as a, which is not thought of to actually really like uh, fit in uh, prominently in, into any any kind of scene. I think we were, you know, somehow was always it's from from the beginning as an unknown band to the middle as uh, like up and coming bands to a major label band to to now like old been around for a long time. Everyone's heard that name, but not necessarily heard the, the band. We always have been a, str- a struggling band. There was never a time where I was like, felt like, uh, uh, Sam I am, like, we've made it to this plateau right here. Like, we could pat ourselves on the back. I think one of the interesting things that you've mentioned in other interviews and sort of, I know that a lot of other bands have mentioned sort of, sometimes you guys were bigger outside of the U.S. than being in the U.S. And that's, you know... I don't know if you if you agree with that, but it just seems like what what do you what do you attribute that to? There was definitely a time like I think right now we're a band that's pretty much the same size in every country. It's just that some cities we do well and some cities we don't. But I wouldn't say we're bigger in Germany than we are in uh, in America right now. Or or there's cities like we're a hell of a lot bigger in Cologne than we are in freaking Cleveland. Cause if we play Cleveland, there'll be like 75 people on we play in Cologne. There might be like, you know, six, 700 people. Um, but, but it's not like, 
you know, you could say, oh, yeah, Sam, I am. There kind of has been washed up in America. Again, to get back to your question, I guess, it's like, yeah, there was a time uh, where, like, especially in Germany but in Europe, that we were doing really super well when we were sort of took a slide in America, you know, like uh, in the early to mid-2000s. Um, and I guess I distribute it to this, like, we just never stopped touring there. We sort of, like, in 2000, we stopped touring America, basically. But we but we didn't stop touring uh, Europe. We still went to Europe once or twice a year, maybe take a year off. I thought, too, something interesting you've mentioned, and I've always loved to hear bands sort of thought about this, is, you know, you're in the indie label world, and you put out records, and you're touring, and, you know, you're in the van, and and then um, you get a little bit bigger, and you got a nicer van, and then you do the major label thing, and it's this whole other world. It's so many more people to meet, so many more things to do, and and, uh, things to uh, have, and one of the funnier ones is radio shows. Um, and sort of that, I'd just love for you to kind of explain, um, you know, a radio show or at least sort of as a, as a punk band, kind of, you know, this label pushing your single or pushing your record and having to do all these things. Um, was it jarring or was it, was it something that you were just like, God, we have to do this and get through this? Or were you kind of enjoying the ride? I mean, it was a combination of both and, uh, and some things like we're, worked out better than other things. Um, but around like 97 and 98, um, we had a song that was like, it wasn't a hit because a hit, I guess, A gets played more often and it accompanies like record sales. So we didn't have record sales. But we had these managers at the time that were big radio prom- promoters uh and basically, you know, we were like in every city in America, we were on the radio, I guess, how you read it, which is not that amazing at all. Because uh, right now, there's currently bands that neither of us have ever heard of that are on like K Rock all the time. And they come, they come around and no one would see them, but they're, they're on the radio. And we were, I guess we were, even though we had been a band for like eight years and we toured and we were like, came from a real scene and we were a real band and sort of manufactured thing, we were sort of vaguely that band where we we, we did start uh, experiencing on our own shows sometimes. We'd play the one song that was on the uh, radio uh, at that moment and people were way more excited about that song than one of our older songs, it's usually the, uh, uh, the set closer uh, or something. Yeah. Yeah. And we go, oh, that's weird. Or we also would just like notice, Oh shit, we play that song and a bunch of people left because we just played that one, one that these people that didn't really have <laughs> that much emotional attachment to our band wanted to hear. And then they left, you know? Well, what's so weird about that is that so many of the, it's like some bands get a pass and some bands don't. And I don't think there's any fault in you guys taking that shot and trying those radio shows because for some people and some bands, they're still around because of those. Um, you know, I mean, I, I don't know. I was thinking about, I was in a car ride the other day and I was, I heard Creep by Radiohead and I was like, this song is the like this video was on MTV. This song was everywhere. That's the reason they're still around. Um, yes, they could have still been a band, 
Um, yes, they could have still put out records, but they, I don't know if they would have been at that level um, to be able to have their message be out there as much. And I think it's weird that some bands get the pass and some bands don't. Um, well, I don't, I don't think it's, I mean, I don't disagree with you, Mr. Uh, host. Please do. You, no, man, you but, can I mean, disagree with me all day. <laughs> no, I, 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 I don't think it's weird. I just think like some bands take that path and are very successful with it and run with it. And like you bring up Radiohead, they were very successful doing that path. And then you have other bands like like Job Baker or Sam I Am that tried it, or or, or even bands that are more popular than Job Baker or Sam I Am, like Face to Face or whatever, that tried it. Uh, and it maybe works for a little while, uh, but it doesn't really like cut through, and then they're gone, you know. And uh, you know, like radio bands, like for people like us, like for two guys with like uh, and probably everyone listening to this too uh, are people with the uh, unhealthy attachment to music and we spend way too much time thinking about bands and songs and, and whatever. Uh, for us, the bands that are on the radio when we're driving and our girlfriends put on K-Rock or whatever and we're just like, oh, face this fucking band, whatever. Like, we ordinarily don't think of the, you know, like the bass player and the drummer or even the singer of that radio band to be real people uh, with real aspirations and act some, you know, like really good people and, and, and have good taste or whatever. And people we could be friends with, right. And share a lot of interest with, but because we think that fucking stupid song is so fucking stupid. We're just like, uh, uh, and one thing about actually going on tour, these bands are going on these radio things. I kind of realized like, Oh, you know, like I fuck the, the the freaking bass player of that shitty band that song that fucking I hate he's a fucking cool guy and he, <laughs> guess what that guy freaking loves up Ivy like what you know yeah uh, so it's like it's really easy to be like the jaded fuck, fuck you about it's what we're talking about like radio and major label business but you're not like, but uh, my, my point was my point was that some bands get a pass some bands don't yes they become successful and move on and it doesn't matter but there's some like punk bands like if you know face to face took a swing at it you know and they I took a big a, a big ass swing at it that's why yeah. that's actually why I brought them They're, they have one song that's still on the radio at least in Southern California you know what's funny about Southern California? Whenever I go there and I turn on the radio in my rental car and I'm driving around, if Rise Against doesn't come on, um, or um, um, the um, oh fuck, I'll think of it in a second. There's two songs that if they don't come on within the first like 20 minutes, I don't think I'm in LA or not um, because yeah, no. um, they, they right, have Rise to come on. Rise Against, they... not by, I mean, uh, not by the, uh, uh, Offspring. They're no doubt. There's a couple of bands like, you know, you listen to it for an hour and you'll hear at least two of those bands. I want to talk about um, your stuff with So Leia um, and Garrett. Um, I think, you know, definitely um, I love that. I think, were there two records for So Leia? There's two albums, yeah. Yeah, 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 there's two, two albums. And, um, you know, you sort of connecting with him in that that whole world how, how did you get in touch with them was it just from touring and you know being being in touch in that in that time frame yeah uh me and garrett met actually sam i am and, and garrett met and uh when they opened when texas opened up for uh 
for uh, Sam I Am in Europe in 2000 and, uh, no, not 2000, 1996. And by the time that w- we met up with them, they were, you know, they were starting to get some people paying attention to them. Um, they were, you know, pretty getting a little bit noticed. But they were also, like, it was already readily apparent that they weren't going to go to distance, you know, they just didn't get along, you know, and, and, uh, Garrett fucking like drove in our van and hung out with us, like all of us, not just me, um, pretty much more than he did with his own band, you know, um, and meanwhile, we all got along with everyone fabulously in Texas recently, you know, like all the guys. But he was like rumbling, oh, fucking this, blah, blah, blah. And we'd be like, what? Like, what? Like, I love that guy. But, you know, it's just, uh, you know, uh, they have been doing a lot of touring and stuff. And just like riffs were starting, you know, I don't know, whatever. Um, and so then by the time, how much? Like it was a good five years after that that um that Garrett had done that, and then he had done new rising sons has been after that and uh and and just around like two two thousand and one um when Sally sort of fizzled out too um and you know it's like I would never call Garrett and say, "Hey, dude, you want to do a band together because he was he's like good looking young he was like 20 still only 25 26 or something and i was like in my early 30s you know and i don't know it's like i'm goofier guy or whatever i never would have gone hey man you want to play with me because i i like he's shooting me down but uh he just called me up and said you want to do a band together you know and i was like holy shit hell yeah rock star you know like i'll I'll fucking back you up um and it was yeah, it was really fun. And we had, you know, like, we really bonded on that tour. And every time Texas came out to uh, California, you know, of course, all the time I am would be there. And uh, But we weren't very co- close. That was just, like, tour friendship. You know, it's much different than real friendship. Um, so what Slaya did for me and Garrett was made us actually friends, you know, because we, you know... Uh, Slay is a band that probably people listening never heard. I don't know. Probably a, most people, even though they like uh, quote unquote emotional rock music, um, never even heard of, you know? But uh, we we did some stuff. Like we toured Japan three times. We toured Europe three times. We, uh, we never did like a full U.S. tour, but we toured the East Coast like five, six times. And same thing on the West Coast. So, uh, you know, when you do that with another guy and you make go in the studio for a month and make a record a couple of times, um, you 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 really uh, bond. And if there's anything I look back, I'm like, you know, I'm proud of like some songs that we wrote and stuff. It's, uh, it's uh, I made like a real lifelong friend, friendship with Garrett, and uh, that's pretty cool. Yeah. I love that. I mean, it's just from, you know, touring and then you guys doing something organically and then being able to be friends through it. That almost is, when you listen back to the records or think about it, that that's such a great memory to have. Yeah. I mean, when I went, when I went back, uh, like, two weeks ago, three weeks ago to play uh, 
with Nassau and New York. Yeah, that's right. I stayed at his house, you know. What appealed you about, you know, working with, with Blair, working with Knapsack, or what What sort of got you excited about playing with them, writing? Well, Blair, I, I mean, Blair. Um, Knapsack was different than any other band, really, that I played guitar in, because any, like, Sam I Am, it's like, uh, I, you know, wrote from, you know, like, uh, what's, what's the word I'm looking for? Like, a lot of, at least musically, uh, songs, like the impetus of it was like a little idea of mine. And then I've like worked on it and expanded on it and about the band and the band ex- expanded on it and then poof, there's a song. Knapsack, Knapsack was a little, little different. One song on that record was like that, you know, like it could have been a Sam Ryan song or something. Um, but but it was like my idea, like I wrote it musically and then brought it to practice and then we expanded on it and it became that song, that song. song. But, uh, and one, one song was Rod, the bass players, like that. Uh, but then all the rest, I don't know how many songs there are, 12 or 10, I don't know, uh, are, are, you know, singularly uh, Blair's music, Blair's idea, Blair, Blair's vision, and uh, and you know we just ex- expound on it. Just uh, expound. We just expanded like his ideas, and and you know, and with you know with guitar, like a lot of the little musical hooks, not singing hooks, musical hooks are, are like little guitar parts. Yeah, yeah, I, I made that, that up or wrote it, but but generally like the song was like you know him sitting on his couch. Uh, and it's, it, it's all him. So um, I guess when I joined Knapsack, I sort of realized, you know, I'm joining someone else's band, and it's like there's a there's a principal songwriter, and I'll be, like, helping out, but it won't be as much me, you know, all about me uh, as far as songwriting. Um, and I think at that point, like in, like, 1990, I joined in 97 or something like that, 96, uh, I was actually like looking for a situation where uh, where there's sort of less uh, pressure. And when I say pressure, like self pressure, not like pressure. There's no real pressures, but uh, I, I myself like come up with things. It's like someone else's deal, and it'd be fun to sort of uh, be more have more like help out role than it be me, and so. You know, like, I, I don't think I would have liked, like, if Sam and broke up, broke up, and was gone, and there was no Slea, and basically I was just, like, the backup guitar player of, of Blair uh, for the last uh, 16 years. I don't think I would be, like, as happy as a as a, a songwriter person, guy, person. <laughs> uh, but I definitely, like, really like it, and... and it, and it, it attracted me back to that situation. It's like, I mean, I mean, every band I'm in, all I am, I'm just a guitar player and I don't sing. So I'm just backing up the singer and I'm like, I'm the, uh, it's, it's a bald dude from Dave Leatherman, uh, the band leader guy. Oh, um, Paul, Paul Schaefer. Paul, Paul Schaefer. Yeah. I'm like, any band that I'm going to be in, I'm going to be sort of like the Paul Schaefer. I'm not going to be the Dave Letterman or, or whatever. That's Garrett or that's uh, Jason Semiamo. That's uh, 
that's uh, that's Blair Blair saying. I'm just like the guy. Like if I, I'm not gonna be the guy in the spotlight. Spotlight. I'm just the guy back, and I'm really happy, and I don't have any aspirations to be anything but that. Well, I'm stoked that you did the Knapsack stuff. Those shows were super fun. Um, yeah, the Knapsack shows actually were super fun because uh, when we were like the first time around in the nineties when we were a band, and before I was in the band, they were a band for like four years. Uh, touring, as much fun as it was, it was very little, uh, like, you know, it's give and take when you're in a band. There's very little take. It was all give. Like, we'd go out and play our little hearts out in front of, like, 50 people every night, week after week, you know? And, uh, like, I was in the band for three years. Um, we did, like, you know, maybe five tours or whatever. And, uh, except when we were opening up for another band, we never played for 100 people uh, until basically our last four shows, which were all like really like, you know, uh, crowded. Uh, Finally, when we broke up, we were just just like the last two weeks. uh, We got a little little bit love. But before that, uh, we were just one of those bands. Like we plugged plugged along and... uh, for very little reward, uh, or, you know, for a lot of reward, actually huge reward, but very little recognition from, from folk out, out, out there. Uh, and it was pretty amazing. Like we played six shows on this little reunion thing. And, um, it was, you know, we weren't playing in front of like 5,000 people or anything, you know, it's just like five, 600 people every night, but every night it was that. And there was a huge amount of, of, of love, uh, and the audience, which was like, you know, I'm not gonna like get uh, get all like weepy about it, but it was uh, it was really re- rewarding, you know. Well, the, I looked at I looked at Colby's face during the show in L.A. and I just saw a smile, like a big smile, and right. maybe that's his personality, maybe that's how it is, but I just was like, this is great. This is there's a packed room, everyone's singing every note, and it's just like this is when this is fun. This is, this isn't forced. This, this is, it felt right. It felt good in the room. And there was like this community sense to it. There were, I mean, there were people that I'd never met before in the room or there, it was just that kind of feeling that night. And, um, I'm glad that you kind of felt the same way. I got to say like, that's, I got the worst review for a show that, um, I've ever read. I mean, it's, it's it, with 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 the uh, three of us, me and Colby and Blair. It's like ingrained in, in us. Out of all the millions of reviews that were out there of any bands we played in and stuff, it's like so ingrained in us. Uh, we played. When in, was uh, this? From from uh, from a long time ago or recently? From a long time ago, from like oh, '98 okay. or something. '97, '98. But we played in uh, in Phoenix, uh, and it was just a show. Like uh, we played a little hearts out and whatever. I guess people. Some people knew us, but most didn't. And some people liked us, but most probably didn't. Um, but like a week or two after the show, I don't know, it was before the internet, so I don't know exactly how we found it. But somehow, maybe it was that alias or record label, they, they gathered, that kind of thing. But we uh, were made aware of the review from the uh, like the Scottsdale Journal or whatever the uh, weekly is. And... Uh, if you if you want to like put if you, especially then if you wanted to put down knapsack, it it's not hard you know because yeah like 
like, like you know, how do you, I don't know how to say this, but you have an extremely like unpleasant looking band, or not unpleasant, but just like a bunch of bald guys, right? I had a hairy <laughs> bass player, but then like <laughs> shaved head singer, and actually, I think I had a shaved head. I'm not sure. Uh, you know, just bald and various degrees of balding guys, which is like very on rock and roll and whatever, uh, whatever. So anyway, the, the review of our show wasn't like, next up with Napsack, they weren't that good or anything. This is what it was. It was, next up was Napsack, who looked like rejects from the casting call of Powder 2. Holy shit. Wait, Wait a minute. The, Say that again. Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll, say, I'll say what a mean, a mean <laughs> review would be like. Next up was Napsack. They sucked and they looked like Powder. But our review was like four times worse because uh, it wasn't, first of all, they didn't say anything about the music. You just said, they look like rejects, meaning we went to the casting call but didn't make it onto the movie. You didn't make it not, onto the movie. Not powder, but powder too. <laughs> Which doesn't even exist. No. <laughs> no, it didn't. And it was so mean. It was so mean that... um that actually it didn't even hurt our feelings and, and especially me, you know, like I'm sensitive. This fucking cap on like me being balding. It's like you got you you got me. I mean I'm sensitive about that. Fuck you. You know, like what what? Why don't you say like I'm stupid, I'm skinny, I'm pale, you fucking asshole. Like, sorry, I can't help the way I look or whatever. And Powder this, too. Holy yeah, this reviewer was Actually, there was an, a Sam I Am review that was really terrible. It was on the, the Pitchfork when we were uh, we were mixing some record somewhere in the, in the middle of 2000s. I said, oh, "Pitchfork, I wonder if Pitchfork ever wrote about Sam I Am," and the answer was like very infrequently and, and barely at all. But there was a review. It was for our record uh, called "Stray," which came out in 2000. Which like it, hate it, uh, whatever. If you actually listen to it at all, you, 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 you're going to realize that Sam is not a Warped Tour skate punk band. But this, like, it's like, I'm not saying it's good. I, I mean, I think it's pretty good. I, we tried, you know, whatever. But, uh, but we're not, we're not, we don't sound like uh, Lagwagon or Pennywise or whatever. But the guy that reviewed this for Pitchfork, he didn't get past the fact that he hates you know, batteries and Pennywise and, and strung out, whatever. And guess what? This sounds close enough to that. Uh, and he just, uh, you know, I don't, it's, there was nothing as colorful as Powder 2, a casting call, but the review was so malicious, like, and just mad, just mad. Sam how Sam could make such a generic, shitty, crappy uh, record that, uh, and I was just reminded of that because this Powder 2 thing, it's like, it was like, exquisite the amount of disdain and hate and the guy not for our music because never mentioned our music but uh how we looked and how dare us even try to be a band when we look like that <laughs> uh, that is amazing yeah it's great when we i mean when we start practicing uh uh for this this shows in the last couple months um i actually brought it up and part of me wonders like is blair and and and, and kobe going to remember this you know, it's Powder 2, and I made a little Powder 2 casting call reference, and both of them, their faces just lit up 
of excitement because they knew exactly what I was talking about. Because even though it's like 15 years ago, out of all, like Blair, Jellistown's gotten reviewed a, a thousand times, probably read a thousand reviews, good, bad, and, and what the ugly review, whatever. But still, the one review that comes to mind is freaking casting call from Potter Two, and I was like, "Hell yeah, bros! We're a band again." 2013, for this short time right now, we're the band again. They're the band back. We're Powder Two. Powder Three, it's back. <laughs> <laughs> that is crazy. Oh, no. I, wa- I wonder if that guy's still reviewing records or or reviewing uh, aesthetically pleasing bands. Yeah, I really don't know. You know. I mean, I, I hope the best for him because he's talented. Yeah. But, you know, I just actually realized when I said that, it's like, uh, Claire will never listen to this podcast, but Colby might. And when he hears me talking about that, I think maybe those guys might be a little bit sore on me right now for even talking about and devoting this much time talking about that review. Um <laughs> Even though they loved it in the privacy of in a little small bubble world of Knapsack, and we all loved it. Even though he wasn't there at the time and he had the full glorious head of hair, um, uh, I don't think they'd be too happy about me talking about this. So whatever, let's stop. Let's stop talking about this. <laughs> <laughs> Done. Done. Um, well, I I wanted to um, you know sort of talk about um, the future and what things you still want to do um, or more to be done? Is there anything that you've always said, I really want to do this and I'm going to do it next year. I'm going to plan on doing it when I can. You're talking about being in a band and making music and all that kind of junk? Anything. Anything. Yeah, music or anything. Anything that you've been wanting to do. I mean, just you're at this point where, you know, you've been in these bands, you can play, you can, you've toured and sort of what's, What's next? I mean, I'm pretty realistic about music, and I uh, don't have, like, I think I've done a lot more than I would ever thought I would have done, you know, especially, like, going places um, because of music. And so my, my real, if I actually thought about what my goals in the future, it's actually pretty much realistic. Like, I'm not going to really do too much new as far as, like, uh, I'm not going to be a band that's more popular, you know. Uh, uh, and not even really necessarily go anywhere, because I've gone, I mean, I'd like to, yeah, like, play in Israel, or I'd like to play in South, uh, South Africa, uh, stuff, but that probably won't happen, and if it doesn't, it's no, it's no big deal. Um, most of my, you know, to be really honest, this is, like, kind of nerdy and honest, most of my... The things that I dream about are unrealistic things that definitely won't ever happen <laughs> more than I dream about things that are tangible or uh, not tangible, but are uh, accessible to me. Like I really, really like to be able to do like Sunside Smith grind on like a big swimming pool, you know, skateboarding. <laughs> and, and it's like, you know, I skateboarded for 20, 30 years or whatever. And, and I haven't been able to do that yet, and so it's probably not going to happen. But, like, yeah, when I'm sitting daydreaming, I don't daydream about re- realistic things that I could do. I I, uh, I, dream, I daydream about things that I can't do and I never would do, be able to Can do. Can you do it on Tony Hawk, the video game? 
Well, obviously, you are not a skateboard video gamer because you would say Skate 3 instead of that. And Garrett, <laughs> I know. I right would now. do 720. If you heard this, he'd be like, fuck that dude. I'm not doing the podcast. I would, I, would, I would play 720. That would be my <laughs> game. Actually, there's a guy in my building uh, that has a, uh, uh, the actual 25-cent machine for 720. He has it in his, in his apartment. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Um, I can do a lot of things on Skate 3 that perpetuate my irrational dreams and desires. You know, like everyone has their like weirdo, uh, like sexual dreams and desires of things that will never happen, you know? And I definitely have my fair share of those. Um, I, with skateboard, you know, there's two things that if, if I, if I saw that, if I had a genie and he said, okay, um, you get X amount of wishes, definitely the two things that would be up there, one would be, I wouldn't say be a rock star, be a famous musician, or even be a better musician, because it's not really, it's never really been a real passionate dream of mine to be either of those things. Uh, but I would definitely would say one, I would want to be like a ripping, like rad pro skater kind of uh, guy, not necessarily a pro skater, but like that good. And I would be like a totally Stevie Wonder style rock and drummer. Um, yeah. And, uh, and neither of those things, like I said, neither of those things are going to happen. And even if you I, never know, you never know. Maybe oh, someone I know. needs a drummer. No, I know. Don't 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 get all like fluffy and like uh, bleeding hot on me. You know that's not gonna happen. And... Um. So yeah, how did the uh, felled trees thing come about? Um. When Sam Sam played a string of shows on the East Coast, like the week of the hurricane. Last year, like we played the exact wrong places to play. We played in Brooklyn. Wait, did we play two? It was only two. I guess it was only two. Wait, did we play three? We might have played three, but I'm not sure. But definitely played in uh, in New Jersey, uh, in New Brunswick, and in Brooklyn. Literally two days after the hurricane, after Sandy, and uh, even though like. Uh, Jersey got hit really hard. I guess something about location where uh, where New Brunswick was. That show was like off the shiznit. It was really crowded, and I didn't see any real flooding or anything. People were talking about it. Like people were saying, I lost my house. Who came to the show and stuff? Uh, but I didn't see anything. But we played at St. Vitus, uh, which is sort of a little bit out out there, you know, and. Um, it's not really near anything, but and the subways were down and the buses were down. So that show kind of got wrecked. Like, uh, you know, there was like 200-something pre-sales, but, like, there was just like 100 and a couple and changed people at the show because people that you actually bought tickets physically couldn't get there, you know? Um, I guess they could if they really wanted to pay, like, for a $40 cab ride or something, but whatever. Um and so it was one of those kind of uh, like, oh man, I flew all the way out of here to play like a shitty show. <laughs> we 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 don't we don't play in New York that often. It kind of sucks to, uh, that uh, it got kind of ruined um, by fucking hurricane. Like our like our semi's problems was worse than all the people who lost their houses. I don't know. It's kind of like an asshole. Whatever. Anyway, 
uh, Garrett came to that show, and we were out. Uh, have you been to St. Mary's before? Hey, you know how, like, the front's a bar, and they have really nice little, like, padded, little cushy little uh, seats, you know, that you can just, like, sl- like slink into and just, like, lounge and, like, lament how shitty your day was uh, with your buddy uh, with a drink in hand. And I, and I was, you know, I, you know, I, I see Garrett once, once, uh, once, uh, once a year, you know, not that often. Now that Atlantic Pacific isn't going on, and 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 what, and Samman doesn't go out there all that often, maybe about once a year. And so, you know, we were just like commiserating as as chums do, and I just got like I'm always looking for a reason to play um music with one of my uh my close friends that are also talented singers because it's really easy to find another guy to play guitar with or a drummer or something but it's it's you know it's like near impossible to find a guy that you respect a singer that you respect and so like with Garrett or Blair or Jason I'm just like, ooh, I got those guys, and I've convinced them that I'm worthy to play with to back them up. Um, so anytime that we can, we can actually make music together. I'm like, fuck yeah, you wanna? So anyway, we're sitting there, and um, I just sort of threw it out there as a really stupid idea uh, because I know there's he doesn't want to play in a band or anything, and he doesn't want to do that with me. We've been there, done that. But I just said, hey, I got a really stupid idea. How would you like to, uh, when you come out to California for the Texas uh, reunion shows, just stay an extra week and we'll, and we'll record a record uh, uh, and just not for, not, we'll just put it on Bandcamp and give it away. And we'll just hang out, drink a bunch of beer, smoke weed, whatever, play video games, like, whatever, and do that. And I, I sort of said it, thinking he'd be like, oh, yeah, that'd be great, what the fuck, no, no, I don't have no time for that. But he was, like, totally into it. And I was like, wow. And and, uh, and he goes, but, you know, I don't want to start a band. I can't start a, I, I can't put the energy to write new, uh, original music for that, because, you know, shit, that's way too much energy and I go what about a cover record and I thought that was such a stupid idea that he was going to go what no but he was like totally into it and I was like what oh and uh, and, that's, and that's what happened so uh, we just decided on this Dinosaur Junior record uh, where you been because among maybe 10 other records over the last 20 years of us being friends it's like a go-to record like we're just hanging out put that shit on, you know, it might be that, it might be Seam, it might be uh, Swerve Driver, it might be Beatles, whatever, but uh, but definitely that record. And so basically what ended up happening with this project was, it was supposed to be me and him, it was supposed to be just garage band, probably just acoustic guitars. Um, uh, but what happened was, I started like just talking to people about it, and uh you know, sheepishly, like, oh, I have a stupid idea. Me and me and Garrett went for it. We're going to cover this, that record. Uh, and, it's, you know, a lot of people said, that's a really stupid idea. And I was like, I know, it's stupid. How stupid? Why would anyone want to listen to that? 
But other people uh, didn't think it was so stupid, like this dude, James and Donnie from this record label, who in turn hooked me up with uh, my now close friend, Roger, that played drums and recorded it. Uh, And suddenly it sort of ballooned from just being garage band to we're going to record it in a real studio with a full band. and and put it on on, on a label, uh, and like not like totally undesigned. It just sort of like turned out that way. And then by the, by the time that the Texas shows came around, Care was like, uh, "Why I what I have a new girlfriend now? She's coming out, and I I don't know. I just too much. I can't do it. I gotta concentrate on these Texas shows." And um, and this was like maybe two or three weeks before he came out. So by then, like, uh, Ed, who played bass, and he played bass in Knapsack also, and Roger and I, we we had been, like, really, like, practicing. Like, we were practicing several times a week, and all, all three of us really sunk our teeth into learning how to play this record, which is, like, outside of all of our comfort zones. We never played, played we never did anything like it. I never did like anything. I never learned... There's like nine minutes of guitar solos or something like that. If you like put stopwatch and every time a guitar solo started, you know, it's like minutes of music with lots of notes. And I was like, I never learned how to play like that or memorize someone else's kind of music like that. Um, so we invested a lot of time into it. And by that time, we said, fuck it. Let's just record it. And if Garrett comes and uh, the music, and if Garrett comes and he can't sing to it, we'll figure something else out. Um, and we did that. And when Garrett came out, he was like, fuck it. I, I got time to sing to, to, to three, three songs. But, you know, I'm like, oh, we're going to, uh, we're going to Joshua Tree. <laughs> like, sit around with you fucking dorks and do this. And, uh, and so then, so then it, it became what it was started out being just a me and Garrett project really turned out to be a me, Roger and Ed project. And uh, and then it was time for us just to go out and and, and search for some other guys to sing on it. And, uh, and originally we thought maybe we'd find another person to sing on it, uh, like sing through the whole thing, and we'd have a band. Uh, but as it turned out, it was more interesting to have a bunch of different guys do it. Um, so it turned out we got uh, the uh, singers Knapsack sang to, uh, Kara sang to, singer Samman sang to, uh, and it became this thing. And yeah, and we made a record. And yeah, we're to- I'm totally proud of it. Like it's uh, it's it's weird that I would be so proud of a, a record, cover record? That, that I made. Yeah, that yeah, I'm so proud of it. And, I, and like I don't listen to Samman records. Or knapsack records. When I when I when we were practicing knapsack, I I literally listened to the knapsack record to knapsack records for the first time in like 12 years. Literally, I never put it on in that whole time. And knapsack's not something you hear. <laughs> you don't hear that. It's not on any jukeboxes. You just don't hear that uh, unless you put on your CD. Um, and Sam, I said, Sam, I missed like Sam Lamb stuff. I haven't heard the first Sam Lamb record. I haven't heard that in at least seven or eight years. Um, but like, kind of like a freaking little asshole, 
I'll talk and every once in a while I put on the peltries and I listen to it and I'm really proud of it even though because it's, it's actually I guess I feel like the process I feel like I can because it's not my music you know it's just somebody else's cool Serge thanks so much okay so I'll, I'll talk to you soon yes man thank, thank you again Hello, Washed Up Emo fans. Thank you for listening to this podcast over the last nine plus years. Or if it's your first time, welcome. It has flown by and I appreciate each and every one of you for listening. And for this current episode you're about to hear, I do have a favor of you. I have some books out right now called Anthology of Emo. And volume two was released last fall. I really think you'll dig it if you haven't heard of them. It features guests from the podcast, including Jim Atkins from Jimmy World, Chris Conley from Saves the Day, Travis Shettle from Piebald, and John Bunch from Sensefield. Also, reprinted volume one so you can order both. Check out the DIY publishing at anthologyofemo.com.